Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Timothy Revel in New York. And I'm Christy Taylor, also in New York. This week, an update on boosters for COVID-19, which may or may not be available to you depending on where you are, and observations from the James Webb Space Telescope catch black holes behaving oddly, at least according to the rules we thought we knew, plus a musical life form of the week and the mysterious case of why male frogs make mating mistakes. First up, you've heard of the Nobel Prizes, but what about the Ig Nobels? This 33-year-old prize, also awarded annually, it singles out a different kind of research. As the tagline goes for the prizes, it's science that makes you laugh, but then it makes you think. The prize for the Ig Nobels is a $10 trillion note from Zimbabwe. And this year's winners, well, they include the inventors of an excreter analyzing smart toilet, a study of people who are fluent in speaking backwards, and even the long-deceased psychologist Stanley Milgram. And all the winners are urged, as is traditional, to have better luck next year. Here to celebrate these achievements with us is Ig Nobel founder Mark Abrahams. He's the editor and co-founder of the Annals of Improbable Research and Master of Ceremonies for the Ig Nobel Award Ceremony, which took place yesterday. Hi, Mark. Hello, hello, hello. So before we get to this year's winners, what I want to ask you is, what does the committee actually look for when awarding the prize? We have only one criterion. If we've chosen well, every winner has done something that makes people laugh and then makes them think. That people's immediate reaction, immediate when they first hear about a prize is to just start laughing. <laughs> and then a week later, all they really want to do is tell their friends about it and dive into it. So one of the ones I mentioned at the top, which certainly made me laugh, is the study looking at people who are fluent in speaking backwards. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? What did they find out? In the study. Uh, there are a few places in the world, and they did most of this research in one village in the Canary Islands off of Spain, where there's a long tradition. People grow up in this village, many of them learning to speak backward as well as forward. They carry on conversations where everything off the top of their head is backward. Most people can't come close to doing that at all. That's amazing. I think one of my favorite winners from this year's list is the one that was given for chemistry and geology. And mm -hmm. that one was for explaining why many scientists like to lick rocks. Why do yeah. scientists like to lick rocks? <laughs> scientists in general, I'm not sure, but many of them, it's because <laughs> for a very practical reason that uh, if you're out 
in the field rather than in an enclosed room, say, and you pick up a rock and you look at it, sometimes it's not easy to see the details on there. But if the rock is a little wet, if it's just been raining, say, a lot Mm. of the details suddenly become much easier to see, especially if you have a little magnifying glass with you. Now, if it's not raining, the simple thing to do is you provide the moisture. (laughs) There's a paired reason here. The second part of it is that sometimes the taste can tell you quite a bit about what kind of rock this thing is. A lot of geologists will tell you, if you ask them, that they have developed a lot of knowledge. Simply by tasting a rock, they can identify a lot about it. Okay. I have a less likely candidate for thinking, uh, which is maybe the sort of gruesome mechanical engineering prize. It it went to a team that's looking at reanimating dead spiders for so-called necrobotics. This is very gross sounding and kind of cool, but I'm not sure what to think about. But you are thinking about it. (laughs) In fact, from what you just said, you're even thinking about how you're thinking about it. So it's a double layer thing. Oh, no. Yeah. Spiders uh, are built a little differently from the way humans and, and other mammals are built. Some of the movement in their limbs comes from muscles pulling in one direction. But some of the movement doesn't come from muscles. It comes from fluids inside the body. Fluids flow into a part of the body and that pushes the limb to move. And that's what was going on here with dead spiders. They arranged to have, you can almost think of it as a syringe, putting liquid in and taking liquid out. And by doing that, they could get the legs to flex. Now, there are eight of those legs on a spider, assuming the spider has not had too much tragedy recently in its life. (laughs) And they're arranged so that that's a nice gripper. In fact, uh, Something that that, uh, happened in the ceremony was they pointed out, the the scientists who did this pointed out that when you go to an amusement park, you sometimes see those old machines that have a claw that reaches Mm. down to pick prizes that's shaped very much like the spiders are. And so they sort of had that in mind while they were doing the work too. But as an interesting mechanical thing, this is an extremely inexpensive, easy to find piece of equipment. You just have to hook up a little bit of extra stuff and you've got a gripper. And it's a pretty powerful gripper. They had it lifting both really delicate things, smaller than itself, and much bigger, much heavier things. Yeah, for robotics, biology is so far ahead of what we can currently do with non-biological robots. I think it would be fair to say that a theme over the years has been excretion. So there's the that really famous study about wombats having cube-shaped poo and why they do from a previous mm-hmm. year. Yeah, that won the physics prize a couple of years ago. And then this year, there's also this one about the smart toilet from the team from America and South Korea. Could you talk us a little bit through that one? Well, you know, it's got computer vision for feces analysis. <laughs> there's a telecommunications link. Why did they build such a thing? This is an attempt, and and before I even go into the details, I'll say the people who did it are extremely conscious that there are really good aspects to this and really dangerous aspects, Mm. and and they are very openly and consciously wrestling with this. They're not trying to pretend otherwise. The good aspect they're wrestling with is if somehow you could analyze the excretion from a person right as it comes out and do some chemical tests and some other tests, 
there are a bunch of very nasty medical conditions you would be able to identify immediately. You could potentially catch a lot of horrible disease situations in the person and injury situations in the person before those things get really bad. Now, of course, nobody, at least nobody that I'm aware of, has all of their stuff monitored quite that way. <laughs> and it's pretty involved no matter how you do it. What they realized was that if you could build a whole bunch of monitoring equipment right into the toilet and hook it up to whatever computer or other equipment is necessary to do a really quick analysis, you could right away learn an awful lot about this stuff. All right. So that's the good side. And by hooking it up over networks, you could even centralize this and do it for a lot of people and even for the community. If there's some kind of uh, spreadable disease that's starting to spread, you could tell really fast, really early. The bad side has, of course, many things. Um, we'll start out with the most blatant bad part of it, which is there's a camera in this thing. <laughs> Need I say any more? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I'm not sure I would like a camera in my toilet. You're not sure? <laughs> You're not sure? <laughs> that was me politely saying no, thank you. <laughs> I, I will say heck no, in no uncertain terms. <laughs> One uh, of the names that I saw on the list this year was Stanley Milgram. And with the Nobels, not normally they're not awarded posthumously, but Stanley Milgram, he passed away in 1984. So what was it he did to uh, get the award this year? Yeah, we've given quite a few Ig Nobel Prizes posthumously. Our, our rule of thumb is if the person is no longer alive, it's still okay to give a prize if there's somebody alive who knew them well, who could come to the ceremony and speak on their behalf. Stanley Milgram did that experiment in the early 1960s where volunteers were asked to give electrical shocks to strangers who were hooked up, at least they were told, strangers hooked up in another room, here's the, the, the dial or the button or whatever, you just dial this up and you'll give them a shock. And the whole question that Milgram was trying to, to look at was, would just random ordinary people follow instructions to do something horrible to a stranger? Mm. This was a few years later, and this experiment is not uh, at least in my mind, anywhere near so severe. It happened out in New York City, in a city full of very tall buildings. They would get a bunch of people to gather together right next to one of these buildings and look straight up the side of the building. What they wanted to see was, what do the other people walking by on the sidewalk do? Will passersby, will strangers seeing that here a bunch of people looking up, will, will the strangers stop and look up? And what they found was that, yeah, an awful lot of strangers will stop and look up. <laughs> now, you can, you can, of course, yeah. extend this research and try it on your own if you're living <laughs> in any place that has tall buildings. There's a classic sketch where someone starts looking up and then someone else comes along and sort of looks at the person, looks up again. And the next person comes, suddenly you've got a line of people. <laughs> and finally, you know, the 20th person in the line taps the person on the back and says, what are you all looking at? And the next one goes, the next one goes, the next one goes. And then the one at the end, they go, oh, I've just got a sore neck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was wondering, I guess, how do you keep this so lighthearted, especially at a time when you know, there's this polarization, there's this politicization of science, we're in a kind of a misinformation crisis. Like, how do you see the role of something that is celebrating 
you know, this sort of unlikely but actually quite useful science? You know, what what do you see as your role in this information ecosystem? Well, it's, it's all unlikely. Um, it's hard to say with many of the things that win prizes whether it is useful. Some things, the usefulness turns out to appear only decades or centuries after somebody finds out. But I think almost all science is like this. Having done this for a long time, having met and spent a lot of time with a lot of scientists, some of whom even became really famous for things they discovered, invented, whatever. I really have the strong impression that when something is new, when it's at its earliest stage, when somebody first thinks of an idea, when they first come up with an experiment, first try it and mention it to the people they work with or the people in the office next door, whatever, almost always the reaction is not what you would hope. Almost always the reaction is, well, so what? Or, oh, that's stupid. Or, <laughs> that, that's not going to work. Or big deal. Or I don't understand. And that's how almost everything starts. Some of those things turn out to be important, no matter how you want to measure that. And when that happens, especially if there's a lot of money involved in the long run, then everything changes and those end up being the things that were taught in school years later. And the story changes to become a story of so-and-so discovered this and the world instantly recognized and celebrated how wonderful. <laughs> and truly, that's, that almost never happens. So I hope that with the Ig Nobels, now and then a few people looking, you know, laughing and thinking about some of these things might stop then and think for a moment that maybe this is true of many other things. So I hope the Ig Nobels get people thinking a little bit about that. That was Mark Abrahams, founder and master of ceremonies of the annual Ig Nobel Awards. He's also currently New Scientist's feedback columnist, in case you didn't know, and his column this week is all about the silly but serious science honoured in this year's awards. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. Meanwhile, after you're done listening to this show, of course, might we suggest you take a listen to some of the other fun and informative podcasts we've got in the feed. Leah Crane and Chelsea White have decreed Pluto a planet again, with some consequences, of course. You can hear how it all happened on Dead Planet Society. That's in your feed already. And if you're looking for a new book to pick up that is fast-paced, fun science fiction that makes you laugh, well, we've got an interview with author John Scalzi next week about his latest novel, Starter Villain. Christy caught up with him about real-life supervillains, volcano layers, and why sentient dolphins are jerks. They're the bullies. They're like the awful people from high school. They are the cetacean equivalent of the people who slam you into your locker. That's coming up next Tuesday right here. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Like it or not, winter is coming to the Northern Hemisphere, and health authorities in many countries are starting to roll out booster vaccines for COVID-19. If you're in the U.S., for example, the Centers for Disease Control are recommending boosters for everyone over six months of age. In the U.K., the booster campaign is instead targeting those over 65 and other more vulnerable groups. Michael LePage, you've been looking at COVID vaccines this week. Should we all be lining up for boosters if our health systems are offering them? Yes, absolutely. The bottom line is, if you're eligible for a booster vaccine, you should get it. It's less risky than getting infected and also helps protect other people. I'd also say, remember, COVID isn't the only nasty respiratory virus out there. We've also got flu and RSV, which kill a lot of people every year. So if you're eligible for the flu vaccine and also the new vaccine against RSV, you should get those too. You can have them all at the same time. But coming back to COVID, why people should definitely get boosters, I think the situation is not too concerning. Cases are rising, but the brutal fact is that the people who are most vulnerable to COVID have already died, millions of them globally. And most of the rest of us have already been vaccinated before or infected or both. Yeah, I will say I'm already having stress dreams about trying to schedule my own booster. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting that taken care of. What exactly is in the boosters? Are we talking about the same ingredients as the vaccines we've already received, for example? Uh, So they've been tweaked yet again and updated. So the boosters that have just been approved in countries, including the US, Canada and the UK, they consist of an mRNA recipe for making a spike protein of a variant called XBB 1.5. So the spike protein, that's a large protein that protrudes from the surface of the virus and the one that's been sort of slowly changing. XBB 1.5 is the variant that was most common in June when vaccine production began. That's already sort of being replaced by other variants, but most of those are closely related. So we're thinking that the booster will still provide excellent protection. And already good news is that there's been this worry about yet another new variant called BA.2.86, which has got a lot of changes. But there's a study out last week that shows the XBB booster works really well against that too. Now, in terms of when you can get these, in the US, the XBB boosters will be available next week. That's from the 18th of September onwards. In the UK, vaccinations already begun, but they're using the sort of older boosters from last year as well as the new XBB ones. So if you get a booster in the UK, you might get either of those two. The older boosters obviously not quite as good as the new XBB ones, but it's still a lot better than nothing. So what about if you're someone who's recently tested positive for COVID? Certainly here, and I know in other parts of the world as well, COVID has been on the rise again. Is it still worth getting a booster if you've recently had the infection? The advice is is that if you've been infected recently, you should wait until getting your booster. But how long you should wait is is sort of a bit contentious. The recommend varies quite a lot. So in the UK, they say in at least four weeks. In New Zealand, it's at least six months. And the CDC in the US is sort of splitting the difference with three months. I think you should also take the broader circumstances into account. So now that we're going into winter, you probably want to get your booster a bit sooner than, say, if it were still summer. 
Yeah, I've also read before that the most protection comes from if you've had the virus before and then also if you've had boosters as well. So that double whammy effect. The boosters that we're talking about at the moment, they're effectively updated versions of the previous vaccines. But you also had a story this week, Michael, about a new COVID vaccine from Moderna that's an improvement on the existing ones. Could you tell us just a little bit about that? Yes. So to be clear, this new improved vaccine is still in trial, so it's not going to be available for us this season. But what Mm -hmm. we found out from lots of studies is that the most effective antibodies we make against COVID are, are targeting these two key sites on the spike protein. And so what Moderna have done is create a vaccine that consists of those two parts rather than the whole spike protein. So the idea is that our immune system doesn't waste its time targeting all the other parts of the protein that are not as effective. And sure enough, tests of this new vaccine have shown that it's much more effective at lower doses. It seems to be working much better. And the other sort of good thing about this is because the um, bit of the protein is much smaller, the mRNA recipe for that is smaller too, and shorter mRNAs are more stable. So this vaccine can be stored in a fridge for much longer than the, the previous generation vaccines. All right, we're going to head to space now. Another week, another James Webb telescope observation reworking our view of the universe, this time with findings about black holes from the early universe. It turns out they may not obey some of the rules we thought black holes were supposed to obey. Alex Wilkins is here. Alex, I've heard that scientists absolutely live for moments like this where they get to say, huh, that's weird. Is that true? Yeah, no, it it really gets their attention and they're all sitting up a little straighter when they hear something that's a little bit amiss. So one of the things that we hope the James Webb Space Telescope would be able to do is study the universe's earliest black holes and the galaxies they sit in, which we haven't previously been able to. We could spot very early quasars, which are these really, really bright black holes that completely outshine the light that the galaxies they sit in. But regular black holes at that age were so faint that we couldn't actually measure them until recently. But now JWST's incredibly sensitive instruments have allowed us to peer right back into those galaxies. I love it when we can see things we couldn't see before. What exactly have they found? Yeah, so this team from Harvard, they analyzed more than 20 very old supermassive black holes that have been found by JWST since it started its observations last year in in 2022. And it turns out that they are proportionally too big compared to their galaxies. So if you measure the mass of stars from the galaxies, from their light, that these black holes are living in, and then measure the mass of the black holes themselves, then it seems the black holes are about 10 to 100 times more massive than the the younger ones that we see around us today. You could also sort of flip this on its head and say that the galaxies are smaller compared to their black holes. But however you look at it, there's something sort of funky going on with black holes in the universe's first (laughs) moments. Yeah, I I love how we talk about these things, Roy. It's like, the black holes are too big, or the galaxies (laughs) are too small. And it's more like, there's something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with the universe. The universe is fine. How early are we actually talking here in terms of the black holes? You know, how, when did they first form? So these older galaxies, uh, which are much further away from us, the light that comes to them actually appears in different hues because the the light that's traveled to us has stretched, um, which we call the redshift. So so the light all seems slightly redder. And the redshift of the light that this team looked at corresponds to about 700 million to a billion years after the Big Bang, which in case you've forgotten, uh, the universe is 13.4 billion years. So it's really quite early in, in the history of the universe. I always forget the universe's birthday. So thank you so much for the reminder. <laughs> You're welcome. 
it's quite hard to wrap your head around numbers that big, isn't it? But basically, we're talking about black holes that formed somewhere between 5% to 7% of the age of the universe, so really quite early on. If these early supermassive black holes are much bigger than supermassive black holes today, is, is that the end of cosmology as we know it? Or could there be a simple explanation? It's not the end of cosmology, um, but it is a little <laughs> bit of a head-scratcher. So there are actually some groups of theorists that did predict that early black holes would look a bit like this more massive version, and, and they predicted this about 20 years ago. But their predictions don't exactly match what we're seeing now. So the models are going to have to be tweaked in some way. Their exact argument was a little bit technical, and it involved the different growth rates of various objects in those galaxies as, as the universe aged, like the stars, supernovas, and the black holes, and how they all interacted together. But it essentially said that we should expect these early black holes to be more massive because other contributors like supernova were less active. But it's worth remembering that all of these ideas and conjectures are still a very much an active area of debate. So we can't really say exactly why these black holes are so relatively large. Does this new finding tell us something about where these early black holes might have come from, too? I, mean, I think if I remember right, 700 million years after the Big Bang sounds a bit early for there to be big stars collapsing into very massive black holes? Yeah, so the, the black holes we see all around us in our sort of local recent universe, these are all formed from collapsed stars. And we know this, and there's, there's good theory and good evidence for it. But in the early universe, we think something different might have been possible. There were large amounts of hydrogen and helium gas that were completely free of heavy elements made from inside stars. And if enough of this gas pulls together then astronomers have predicted that it can collapse under the weight of its own gravity to form something called a direct collapse black hole, which involves no stars at all. And these very massive black holes relative to their galaxies are so close to the universe's start time that it suggests that this might have been the only way they could have grown in this way because there wouldn't have been enough time for them to have grown as large from collapsed stars. But the researcher told me we can't be sure at this point. It's it's the strongest evidence we've had, but it's not the smoking gun. Um, so that would be a black hole just 100 million years after the Big Bang with zero pollution. And that would be like the golden uh, piece of evidence for a direct collapsed black hole. But we might have to wait a little bit longer to find that. Finally, it's time for Life Form of the Week. Uh, Chen Lai is here to reveal it for us. Chen, can I offer you a drum roll to help? Well, actually, this week's Life Form can do it itself. <laughs> uh, yeah, certainly drumming. Drum roll, maybe not quite yet. What, what was that noise we were listening to? So that's the sound of a bird called a palm cockatoo. It's essentially drumming, as you said, by knocking an object against a tree as part of a mating display. And new research is finding that it might not just be the drumming that makes them special, but also the way they craft the objects they use as drumsticks. That's really cool. Can you help me picture them a bit? What does a palm cockatoo actually look like? Sure. So palm cockatoos, like other cockatoos, are actually a type of parrot. They're native to northern Australia, New Guinea, and some islands around East Indonesia. If you've ever had the pleasure of seeing pictures of them, you'll know they're really fun to look at. They're these big grey birds with distinctive red cheek patches that actually change when they get excited or alarmed. And like other cockatoos, they have this crest of feathers, kind of like a mohawk hairstyle on top of their heads. Yeah, because they really look like rockers, which is pretty <laughs> cool. 
So what, what's actually special about their musical abilities? Yeah, so one of the most interesting things about palm cockatoos is that they're the only known animals other than humans to make a musical tool and then perform music with it. And what's even more special is that these makeshift drumsticks are actually quite unique in their designs for each cockatoo, according to a study I covered this week. How did the researchers discover this? Are they are they being roadies, essentially following these <laughs> birds around on their tours? Is that how, how they learned it? Yeah, that's a good analogy, actually. So it's quite common <laughs> after these musical displays for cockatoos to throw away their drumsticks. So the team of researchers monitored where and when these displays happened and decided to collect these discarded tools. In total, they gathered 256 of these drumming tools and they found around 89% of the tools were made from small branches showing a clear preference for branches over seed pods, though a small number of birds like to use both types. They also found that the cockatoos had individual preferences for different kinds of drumsticks. Some liked them skinny and long, some liked them long and fat, and everything in between. And they were pretty consistent with these preferences. There was also no evidence that neighbouring cockatoos copied each other. Instead, the researchers proposed that they may have learnt what makes a good drumstick from their dads. As one does. Um, It sounds like these cockatoos have pretty varied tastes and maybe kind of interesting brains. Yeah, definitely. So the results strongly suggest that each bird is an individual and have their own independent thoughts, which hints that they are probably more intelligent than we all previously thought. I love the way they throw their drumsticks away once they're done. That's real, you know, drum solo complete Mm -hmm. and now launching my uh, drumstick into the crowd. I guess the question I'm wondering is if we could team them up with Snowball, the famous dancing cockatoo. That would be amazing. And before we go, uh, a story that we just felt we really ought to tell you about, and it involves frogs and how they mate. So when frogs mate, the males grab onto females and then they just sort of hang on there for days at a time. It's it's quite strange. But then in this heat of the moment, the males, they, uh, well, they sometimes grab onto the wrong warm body. So fish, for example, or dead frogs or inanimate objects, they just seem to grab on and then go to town. It's all a bit unusual. They do this without seeming to realize that they've actually made a mistake. This isn't new. They've been doing it for about 200 million years. But it is hilarious, at least if you judge by the laughter in our editorial meeting this week. And while researchers long thought this misdirected affection could be explained maybe specifically useful for species with low proportions of female frogs and therefore lots of competition around mating time, new research has a different conclusion. All frog and toad species, since the dawn of frogs and toads, have been mating with fish by accident. Certainly committing to the bit. <laughs> That's it for this week. So thanks so much for listening, as always. And our show notes, well, they will have links to all the stories you've heard about today. You can subscribe to our show on whatever app you're listening on. And bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or 
anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustolium.